Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Jacob Avila and I am joined today by Michael Pratz. How's it going, Mike? What's up, Jacob? Oh, nothing. Uh, just um, really freaking out about this article. I'm freaking out in a good way, of course. One of the things that's like the hardest, I think, for us to do, but one of the most important things is to figure out if your unstable patient has a PE or has some other cause of being unstable. Because, I mean, what if you know you you have somebody that's super sick and you think that you know maybe they have a little bit of right heart strain? You push thrombolytics and it turns out they had something that didn't eat thrombolytics. I mean, you could actually cause harm here. Um, or they had huge. an aortic we, dissection. Or they had an aortic dissection, right. I mean, this is like huge build diagnosis. Now, I'm not really looking for a gold standard or replacement for the gold standard for a PE. What I need to know is, does my unstable patient have a massive PE or not? And to be able to figure that out accurately um, would be something that I would be very, very excited to figure out. Now, in the past, there has been a couple of different things that are supposed to help. Um, one of them, probably the more common one, is something called a McConnell sign, which is um, RV apical hyperkinesis with hypokinesis of the lateral free wall. There's a 60-60 sign. You can look for acceleration time through the pulmonary artery. There's like a bunch of different things that have been described to kind of help. Tapsy. Tapsy is another one, tricuspid annular plane of systolic excursion. But it turns out that those, unfortunately, don't have great sensitivities and specificities. In certain patient populations, they work great, but in all comers, maybe not all that great. So I was sent this article by my good friend Ben Smith, and it is crazy. It's exciting. It's entitled, A Doppler Echocardiographic Pulmonary Flow Marker of Massive or Submassive Acute Pulmonary Embolism. Mike, what do you think of this? I agree with you. This is a game changer and pretty impressive results. So let's get into this study. This was actually done by some cardiologists and maybe some internal medicine physicians. And the article title is A Doppler Echocardiographic Pulmonary Flow Marker of Massive or Submassive Acute Pulmonary Embolus. This was published in JACE 2019. The JACE. The questions they asked here were, which echocardiographic markers are the most accurate in the diagnosis of massive and submassive pulmonary embolism? And then secretly, their secret question that I inferred was, how good is the early systolic notch sign for this? Oh my God, what is that? What is early systolic notching? I've never heard about it. It probably is not real. It tell me it's not real. If I haven't heard about it before, I feel like it doesn't actually exist. It may seem like a figment of your imagination, but this is a real thing. Early systolic notch, which we will refer to as ESN a lot of the time. Henceforth. Henceforth is a Doppler measurement that you can get on echo. And it's pretty cool. It seems, I mean, to be honest, I've never done this or had, I had not never even heard of it prior to reading this article. But the gist of how you obtain it is you're you're doing your echo, you're getting a parasternal short axis view, and then you're going to fan up towards the base and the mediastinum so that you can see that nice view with the aortic valve in the middle and kind of the the right the right outflow track 
going around it. So you visualize the pulmonic valve, and then you're going to put your pulse wave Doppler proximal to the pulmonic valve. That's going to give you a nice waveform of the blood leaving the pulmonic valve. So wait, is that is that the diamond, or is that the two lines? Which which Doppler is that? That's the two lines, pulse wave Doppler, not not the diamond continuous Doppler. Got it. Okay, so you get that, and it's going to give you a little waveform there. The early systolic notching is in that waveform if you see a quick spike followed by a nice dome and we'll certainly have to put some pictures in the show notes we know this may be hard to visualize but spike and dome and the idea is that there's a very abrupt quick flow followed by a quick decrease in flow and then a nice smooth dome after that and how early that spike comes turns out that's important in figuring out the level of obstruction okay so that's that's how you find it but i mean i appreciate you tell me this information but it just it just sounds like like why in the world would i be doing this like what what does this mean well maybe this is the best way to figure out if someone has a submassive or massive pe how do they do this study why how are they able to tell me this information all right well at this single academic center they took anybody that had a transthoracic echo within 48 hours of a diagnosed pulmonary embolism, and they used their CT angiography for the diagnosis. Now, important exclusion criteria, they took out anybody that had chronic pulmonary hypertension, so that's a key point, as well as they took out a lot of people that did not have complete exams, and they were kind of picky about this. So they took out anybody that you couldn't see the right ventricular outflow tract pulse wave Doppler, or if they did not have a discernible RV endocardial border, or if they just decided that's a suboptimal pulse wave Doppler study. So they only took like the best case scenarios of these echoes. But I mean, that's, that's okay because that's one of the things like, you know, like with the, all the aorta studies that say like we have like a hundred percent sensitivity and specificities, they all excluded cases in which you couldn't identify the aorta. And there's plenty of cases where you can't see the aorta. So, I mean, these studies, of course, they're only using it on patients in which you can get the appropriate signals. And I think that that's like perfectly reasonable. Additionally, they actually also uh, had 90, well, they had 187 patients that had that PE, but then they also included 90 patients that didn't have a PE, but still got the CTA and their, as their in primary indication being to evaluate a PE. And I think that's important because they didn't just look at patients who had PEs. They looked at all patients that you had suspicion of a PE, which is really how we should be applying this test anyways. Great point. And just a few other notes in case it wasn't clear, this was a retrospective cohort. So although this was collected prospectively, they're really analyzing this retrospectively. They defined RV dysfunction on CT based on the RV to LV diameter ratios. If it was greater than 0.9, then they counted it as RV dysfunction. And they also did not count any small PEs that were less than segmental pulmonary emboli. Other than that, they used pretty typical definitions for submassive and massive pulmonary embolism. Uh, massive being hypotension, less than 90 millimeters mercury systolic, or requiring inotropic support, or obviously if they were in arrest. And did they only look for that early systolic notching? 
No, that's the thing. In the introduction to the article, they actually set out to find any sort of echocardiographic parameter that might be able to help in identifying this population of PE. So they measured all sorts of weird things. Uh, ejection time, acceleration time, deceleration time, uh, acceleration time to ejection time ratio, notch time. They did also do the 60-60 sign and the RV diameter. So some things that we're more familiar with. And they, of course, checked out McConnell's sign. Like good old McConnell's. Everyone's favorite echo eponym. I think this is a good starter study um their results were 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 just amazing i mean what what did they find with that early systolic notching man so like you said they started out with everybody that had a suspected pe and that was like over 5,000 patients and their incidence of pe in that population was 10.2 percent then they pared it down to meet their inclusion and exclusion criteria so they had 187 that met their criteria there, and then they added those 90, like you said, the 90 patients without a PE. So we end up with 277 patients. Their primary outcome was this ESN, how accurate is it to identify a massive or submassive PE? Turns out pretty good. So sensitivity 92%, specificity 99%, ROC 0.96. So that's more accurate than anything else we've ever seen. Compared to McConnell sign, McConnell sign had a sensitivity of 52% and a specificity of 97%. So we went from a sensitivity, which is what we need in emergency medicine for that McConnell sign of 52%, all the way up to 92% sensitive with that early systolic notching. Even that 60-60 sign, which is something that, I don't know, it takes a little bit of time, but I'll do it if I really need to. That had a sensitivity of 51% with a specificity of 96% in that study. So with all these signs that we actually look for fairly frequently, um, pretty high specificity. Um, sensitivity is not good, which we kind of knew that already. But with this early systolic notching, it, this one has a high sensitivity as well as a high specificity. So much more useful clinically, in my opinion. Put another way, the ESN was seen in 92% of the patients that had a massive or submassive PE and it was only seen in 2% of subsegmental PEs and zero patients that did not have a PE. Yeah, but I mean, it's got to be some like issue with who does or who interprets the scan, right? I mean, I bet the uh, inner observer agreement uh, would probably be pretty low because it seems like a maybe a difficult thing to look for. Did they evaluate that as well? Wrong. It actually oh had gosh. great inner observer agreement. The kappa 0.93. And there's like so few things in medicine that have kappas that big. They had a 96.7% agreement. Yeah, and you bring up a good point, though. We should mention that this is not a true point-of-care scan at this point. First of all, it was done retrospectively. But second of all, it seems that these studies were probably performed by echocardiographers, maybe cardiologists. But this was not the uh, – these were people that had a lot of training in performing these echoes. These are not typical focused echo views. But why isn't this point of care? I mean, all this is is a parasternal short-axis view. You go up towards the base a little bit to get to basically where that uh, aortic valve – you can see that aortic valve. And if you just look over to the right of the screen, right there is the pulmonic valve. 
the pulse wave Doppler button isn't intimidating. There's no teeth on it. You just hit it, put the, you know, the gate where you're supposed to. Why? I don't know why we can't be doing this. I mean, the, the one extra thing is that we might have to adjust the sweep speed, especially if a patient's tachycardic to be able to identify that easily. But with a little bit of, you know, kind of searching on your machine, you should be able to find every button that you need to figure this out. And it, it just takes a couple of steps. And I'm, I think this is doable. Now, full disclosure, I've literally never done this, but I have definitely gotten this view before. I've done 60-60 signs before, which is the same view. I think this is doable. I agree with you. And I'm not saying this can't be point of care. I'm just bringing up that in this study with these super high accuracies, it may not meet our definition for point of care. So that just means that there's maybe if we expand it to other populations, we have to recheck those accuracies but i think that this is actually the best way to test something you want to test it out in the best circumstances so that you know it has the potential to be really accurate and then you can see how does it perform in other scenarios yeah and this is actually a great point i mean it's not all like you know rainbows and unicorns or whatever um there are some limitations and one of them that you mentioned of course is that this was done by echo text read by cardiologists who are way better at this than we are. The other kind of limitation that I think is important to understand is that, and I don't, I couldn't really find if they mentioned exactly what the most, like the median or mean time from the CT scan to the ultrasound that was done, but they included any study that had that echo done within 48 hours of that CTPE or CTPA. Um, And PE is a very dynamic process. So the patient definitely could have, developed early systolic notching a day later and might not have had it in their initial presentation to the emergency department. So this, if they had said they had done all of them within, I don't know, what, what's reasonable, like four to six hours of that CTPA, I would be much more willing to say that I can definitely use this on my patients in the emergency department. But I still think that it's good data and I'm excited to try this out on my next patient with a, with a suspected PE. Now, Jacob, to your point that this should be easy for anybody to perform. I think that there's actually some evidence here that it could be challenging for some people. If you look back at their original population and and who they excluded for what, you'll see that they actually excluded 28% of their original cohort because the RVOT Doppler was not satisfactory. So if these echo techs aren't getting images that are good enough to evaluate for ESN, then that would be that makes me a little bit worried that the standard Joe off the street isn't going to be able to get really good Doppler measurements to figure this out. Yeah, that, that's a good point, too. And again, I mean, we have to be able to see the data to be able to make judgments off of that data. And that is an important limitation. If you can't see it, you can't use it. And I, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, in general, I want to say that everybody I mean, you're obviously way better at you know, ultrasound and life and <laughs> beards and stuff than I am. But Not like true. in general, like there's a, there's a fair bit of my patients in which I can't get that perfect echo view anyways. So you're absolutely right. And that is a caveat, but that's definitely not, I don't mean to imply that you're implying this, but we should still try to do this, even though we, you know, a third of our patients, we might not be able to see the view to get these images. I totally agree. Now, another point about this is this still doesn't help us in the battle of determining acute versus chronic. 
Uh, I know that they that that's kind of frustrating, right? Right, because we would love to say this person's this person has an ESN. We know that this RV dysfunction is due to an acute PE right now, so we can act on it. But you still can't, since in this study they excluded anybody with chronic pulmonary arterial hypertension, still not super useful. So in those situations, I think 60-60 sign is still our best bet since that specifically is looking between acute and chronic causes. Well, and something like TAPSI, something like RV hypertrophy, um, I think when we're evaluating our patients, it would be nice if there was one thing that is all we need. But remember, Mike, that ultrasound is a tool in your quiver or an arrow in your toolbox. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just a part of it, right? So, I mean, I think if you put everything together, it's okay to use this early systolic notching, but also look at RV thickness, right? Which is a pretty easy calculation to make. Also look at that 60-60 sign. Just one more tool that we can keep in our quiver. So, Jacob, at the end of the day, what are you going to do with this new information? Is this study changing how you're treating these patients with suspected PE? No. And the reason why is because this has not been done in emergency medicine patients. Um, but I'm definitely going to be doing this with what I already do. Um, because when a study comes out like this, the important thing is not to immediately change everything that you do because this study might not be applicable to, uh, to my specific patient population. And it might not be applicable to emergency medicine patients in general. But what I'm going to do is from now on, when it's available, every patient that I have a, a high suspicion of a PE, I'm going to try and get this view and see how it matches up with the labs with the CT scan. And then, you know, I get, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 of these under my belt. Maybe I'm going to start using this prospectively to actually change treatment. So right now, the way it's going to change my management is I'm going to do this calculation on my patients now. I agree. This is an exciting idea, and I want to check it out for myself to see if it actually lines up with what I'm seeing in my population. All right, well, let me recap this study. So they ended up retrospectively looking at 277 patients. The main findings were that the ESN, early systolic notching, was 92% sensitive, 99% specific at identifying a massive or sub-massive pulmonary embolus. So our take-home points are that in patients with a suspected PE, this ESN is highly accurate for this group of submassive or massive PE. Secondly, and importantly, we still need more research to see how this performs in a broader population and performed by broader operators and to evaluate if this affects any patient-centered outcomes. Thanks so much to the authors. This is a wonderful study and really promising for our echocardiographic evaluation of pulmonary emboli. And thank you for continuing to listen to our podcast. If you want to find out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org, check us out on Facebook, or talk to us on Twitter. Until then, we'll talk to you later. You can talk about as much as you want, man. See ya.